Tuesday. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event of the evening for the Worldwide Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship. Wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, our first event of the evening is a one-call match with a 15-minute time limit. There ain't nobody. There ain't nobody in wrestling who can make me quit. And that's the bottom line. Cause Stone Cold said so. Tuesday. We are what wrestling's all about. New York City here. Chicago here. Jamie on my left. Linda on my right. But I'm not telling any of the girls who I'm going to give it to in Chicago until that night. Tuesday, wrestling. Tuesday returns to Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. It is Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday, here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Jonathan Hood with you. Follow me on Twitter, twitter.com, tweetjhood. Also follow me on Instagram, igjhood. So glad you're with us every Tuesday after SmackDown Live is over on the USA Network. We hook you up with some pro wrestling slash sports entertainment conversation. So glad you're with us. If you are a wrestling fan and know of other wrestling fans, tell them every Tuesday night after SmackDown, we give you a little something special with Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. We do this every summer here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. If you're not a, a fan, make sure you tell a fan <laughs> that, that we do this every Tuesday. We have a very special guest in a little bit. We'll hear from Scott Bowden. You may know, not know that name, but I know that name very well because he's part of a terrific podcast. It's the KFRpod.com. KFRpod.com. He's terrific. Kentucky Fried Wrestling <laughs> is, is what his podcast is all about. It's a tremendous podcast talking about the history of Memphis wrestling. And Scott used to be a manager uh, a working manager uh, in Memphis, working with Jerry the King Lawler and so many others. So you're going to get a real education of what it was like for Jerry the King Lawler in his prime as a Memphis talent and really one of the best territories ever in the sport of wrestling, that Memphis territory. And you, If you're Hulk Hogan, if you're The Rock, it doesn't matter. If you um, were a great wrestler, including Steve Austin and others, you had to go to that Memphis territory to be able to get to the top. And so um, we'll talk to Scott Bowden about that coming up in a little bit here on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. By the way, a couple of side notes for you. The WWE will have their Extreme Rules pay-per-view coming up very soon. It's a very good card. Their next pay-per-view, Extreme Rules, AJ Styles is the WWE champion. He will take on Rusev. Uh, the final entrant in a number one contendership gauntlet match, Rusev prevailed, defeating The Miz on SmackDown Live. So it's Rusev against AJ Styles. I think that that is a solid matchup. The Intercontinental Championship reminds me of the old school because it's a 30-man Iron Man match between Dolph Ziggler and Seth Rollins. If you did not see their matchup on Raw, go back and watch it. I'm not a Raw watcher because I, I got a job. I ain't got time to watch three hours of Raw every Monday night because usually I'm here while Raw is on. So, And even if I didn't, I wouldn't spend three hours watching Raw every Monday. But I did go and find that match. Terrific match from Raw. So Ziggler against Rollins. That should tear the house down. Matter of fact, that could be the... That could steal the show, Ziggler and Rollins. A 30-man Iron Man match? Very good. I think Bliss and Jax, Alexa Bliss and Nia Jax for the Raw Women's Championship. I think that's going to be a very good matchup as well. It's an Extreme Rules match. It's amazing 
Nia Jax is a big girl, a big girl, and she is very well skilled against Alexa Bliss. It's no more than what five four, five five, but she's nasty, and so I think that that really works. They work very well together. Uh, SmackDown Women's Championship, Carmella against Asuka uh, is good. The, I think the matchup clearly that the WWE wants you to focus on is Roman Reigns against Bobby Lashley. So the WWE initially announced a multi-man match as the official number one contendership before Raw General Manager Kurt Angle rescinded it. So now it's Lashley against Reigns. Now, of course, in Vegas, I'm sure on the board that Roman Reigns is a favorite to win the match. But I just want it to be entertaining. I want to see how, what Bobby Lashley does against Roman Reigns. Um, I think the build for this has been pretty good. I'm just looking forward to seeing how that match looks. And see, because you wouldn't think on the surface that this would be a good uh, a match stylistically. But I think it's going to be interesting at least to see them uh, together. Braun Strowman against Kevin Owens in a steel cage match. Very good. Finn Balor against Baron Corbin. Can Finn Balor actually win a, uh, a solid matchup against Baron Corbin? We're going to keep our eyes on that. And so I, I think that overall, on paper... Extreme Rules should be a very good pay-per-view. As someone that's not necessarily the biggest Raw fan, I think some of the Raw talent, you see some SmackDown flavor in there as well. I think it should be should be a, a fine card. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing some of that on the WWE Network. Brock Lesnar has re-entered the drug testing pool and is eligible to fight in January. Uh, so if you didn't see this over the weekend, we talked about this in our lit chocolate episode yesterday, go back and listen to Jason, uh, Okamoto who covers the MMA for, uh, ESPN.com. The interview was in our third hour of yesterday's show. And you can just tell that, oh, as an MMA guy, he can't stand wrestling. He can't stand sports entertainment. And you know what? I can understand why, because he is a an MMA writer, and he doesn't think that he needs to talk about WWE guys in the sport that he covers. All right, cool. So Brock Lesnar comes into the cage, and uh, and clearly he wants to be the heavyweight champion because he he's going right after Daniel Cormier, who won the title against Miocic on uh, on Saturday. And Brock Lesnar's cutting a promo, wrestling style, and I can just I can just feel it. The, the MMA crowd just does not like that wrestling nonsense in their sport. <laughs> and so you can hear Okamoto, too, in that interview, just kind of like, uh, you know, I'm just not a wrestling guy. I'm an MMA guy. And here comes Brock Lesnar twice using performance dancing drugs. And now he's back here again. Just shows you that the UFC is just desperate. They just they don't have the star power. When I look at the WWE with um, what they're doing right now with their Former MMA stars, I mean, Ronda Rousey's been terrific, um, and, and she seems flawless in the, uh, in the WWE so far. Shayna Baszler, the NXT Women's Champion, it, I know it's an acquired taste, it's a different type of style, but I think Baszler, every time I see her getting better and better, she's not going to ever be the high flyer or someone that's going to you know, take your breath away, but she is someone in, in a kind of an old school style that really resonates with me when I'm watching her. Step by step, I think she's going to be good. But also a former MMA person. And of course, we know Brock Lesnar, the universal champion, who's never around to defend his championship. So so there's that. Um, one other bit of news here about Ric Flair. The Nature Boy Ric Flair, who you heard in the promo there, which is a great promo, underrated promo about trying to find women in Chicago and in New York or whatever. 
So the two-time WWE Hall of Famer undergoes successful surgery. Nature Boy Ric Flair underwent a successful intestinal surgery on Monday, and uh, he's recovering nicely in the hospital. Charlotte Flair uh, talked to WWE.com about it, and she said, while some have assumed the effects of his health problems last fall may have slowed down my father's lifestyle, he's really embraced it all and doing a lot more work the last few weeks and really enjoying life. And she also tweeted that Rick is doing well. So Flair, with that intestinal um, surgery that he went through, uh, he looks like he's doing just fine. And lastly, the nature boy, Rick Flair, is doing okay. But then Jim Ross, I'm, keeping, I'm concerned about him. Jim Ross, if you didn't see it on Access TV, was with Josh Barnett, his broadcast partner, in which I think it was really a solid G1 um, Clash of Champions, Saturday Night's Main Event type of broadcast. Um, Access TV does this when New Japan comes to America. New Japan Pro Wrestling, by the way, if you have not seen this, it is a really, really solid product. The one thing that continues to go in my mind is, man, when wrestling sucked in like 1990 and when after the WWE purchased WCW when there was a lull in the in the business, where was New Japan? <laughs> you could have used a New Japan in some of those lulls in the business when American wrestling wasn't so good. Anyway, so Jim Ross, the longtime WWE announcer, is an announcer for New Japan Pro Wrestling, and uh, the G1 USA special was in San Francisco at the Cow Palace. And so Jim Ross uh, went uh, ass over tea kettle uh, at the broadcast position in a matchup that took place, and he fell over in his chair and hit the floor. Now, he says that he has uh, something like a broken rib from that. Now, Jim Ross is almost, what, 65, almost 70 years old, and he's sitting at ringside, and he gets knocked over and hits the floor, helped up by the people uh, around him. But apparently there was an injury there, and so, you know, he says he's doing well. We tried to get him on the show, Felix. He said that, he wasn't prepared to come on, I guess, because when you talked to him, he was an emergency, right? Yeah, he did. And he was saying, he pretty much told me today that he's struggling a little, but he's confident he'll be back soon and better than ever. I really wanted him on the show tonight to kind of talk about it, but clearly he's still recovering. And I also think Jim, being the businessman, he will talk about New Japan and his experience with Access TV on his own podcast, The uh, Ross Report, which you can find that on where you can find your podcast, The Ross Report with Jim Ross. So I think that's what he's doing, waiting till Wednesday to talk about it. But we wanted to have him on tonight, but um, not available as he's just trying to recover from all the travel he's done around the country and also in San Francisco. So all the best to Jim that uh, he's feeling better because if he had a broken rib after that Jay White match, yeah, that's, that's not good. Uh, oh, by the way, lastly, in that New Japan, go out of your way to find it. Usually that show airs on Friday nights at uh, 7 o'clock on Access TV. It's got to be on your cable uh, or on your uh, dish. The matchup between Cody Rhodes or the American Nightmare Cody and Kenny Omega is an all-timer. It is a great match, and it is. It's. I don't want to give it away, but it was a. It's still on my DVR. I'm going to go back and watch it at some point again this week. But it was a tremendous main event in San Francisco for the G1. Their special they had at the Cow Palace. As you are listening to Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. Jonathan Hood with you. Hit me up on Twitter, twitter.com, tweetjhood, or write your thoughts on the Facebook wall, facebook.com. Well, we're going to turn now to 
Scott Bowden, who is part of KFRPod.com. You know, I would have loved to have Memphis Wrestling back in the day be a big enough territory to come to Chicago because what a unique territory Memphis was. All the all-time greats had to go through Memphis before they can to, uh, were able to come through their territory and be stars, whether it's Dallas, whether it was in Portland, whether it was in Detroit, uh, in New York, in Florida, Georgia, uh, wherever you saw stars, usually they came to do Memphis first and had to face Jerry the King Lawler and that roster in Memphis. So earlier today I got a chance to talk to Scott Bowden, who was a former manager, a working manager for the Memphis Territory and part of the KFRPod.com. Let's go back in time. Just moments ago, I got a chance to talk to Scott Bowden on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Every Tuesday after SmackDown Live, we talk some pro wrestling slash sports entertainment. As we have this conversation, go to the website, kfrpod.com. kfrpod.com is a tremendous podcast of the history of Memphis wrestling. Names like Lance Russell, Jerry the King Lawler, superstar Bill Dundee. Man, if you were anyone in pro wrestling, you had to go through Memphis first. And a person that saw so much of Memphis wrestling history is Scott Bowden. And he is the host and star of KFRPod.com. He joins me here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Scott Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. Uh, there's one thing I like, it's talking Memphis wrestling. I could do it all day. So uh, looking forward to it. I want to let the audience know, because as someone that listens to your podcast, so I'm very familiar with a lot of some of the stories that you've given on the podcast, but could you tell our our audience your first memories of Memphis wrestling as a kid? Uh, Well, you know, I I wanted to uh, watch cartoons when I was a kid, and I was, you know, I wanted Foghorn, Leghorn, and my dad would switch it over to WHBQ Channel 13, and uh, I'd get Lance Russell. Uh, and I guess in hindsight, maybe there weren't too many differences in their delivery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I, and I made that joke on the air to Lance one time, and he just rolled his eyes and was like, ah, don't start with that smart stuff. <laughs> uh, but, uh, really, the first memory I have is the Mongolian Stomper. And again, just one of these great characters in wrestling that, that you don't see too much nowadays. Uh, you know, the guy was, you know, had the slick head is completely shaved these menacing eyes that seem to be like staring right through your soul and he was tossing these jabronis around like they were sacks of garbage and i just thought that was amazing uh and he had this great manager bearcat wright who was really uh he was the first african-american world heavyweight champion for the wwa uh, he's in the one of the, the honorary wing of the uh, uh, WWE Hall. Uh, didn't get the full treatment, but uh, one of the great talkers of all time. So he would do all the talking, and the stomper would just stand there and just stare right through the camera, and it just it would just freak you out, man. Um, and the night he debuted at the Mid South Coliseum, he he you know they had him in back to back matches where he just destroyed two guys. One of which was Dennis Condry of Midnight Express fame. Uh, and so he, that was the, like really the first indelible memory that I, that I have of it. And then, uh, when Jerry Lawler came along and had that personality that just kind of, uh, pulled me in and he had that intense feud with Bill Dundee in 1977, that's when I really became hooked. Uh, I, cause I, you know, I don't know how much, you know, you strike me as someone who knows a lot about the territory days. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, that, that series of matches just had the most, uh, insane stipulations, which just seem to get crazier and crazier each week. 
And I don't know too many too many towns that could have uh, the same match, the same main event headline, ten to twelve weeks, and you know the crowds would keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger till eventually they were selling out. Scott Jerry Lawler is just someone, just a, a huge name in the wrestling business. And I think that a lot of your wit and your timing came from Jerry, working with Jerry and <laughs> watching him on television all those years. So what, what was it like to uh, actually work alongside him because you were a- actually to able to work in the Memphis territory as a manager, as a talent? Yeah, it, and it was, almost, it was almost like it was meant to be. I, I met Kevin Lawler, and uh, we became fast friends. And, I, I, and, you know, and you would do anything in those days just to get backstage. And so Kevin one time asked me if I wanted to set up the ring. And so I, I you know, went to the 1960 Union Avenue WMC TV, uh, which was just a staple of my childhood. Uh, you know, at one time, that, re- that Saturday morning wrestling show was the third highest ranked, sh- third highest rated show in the city, including primetime. It was like Dallas, Dynasty, and Memphis Wrestling. And you could say that Memphis Wrestling had better writing and, and, and more drama than, than either of those two programs. Uh, and and I, I remember I just I cracked a joke. I was next to Lawler. And, but, you know, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I grew up sort of taking on his cocky swagger like a lot of kids did. Uh, you know, maybe if I grew up in Pittsburgh, Terry Bradshaw would have been my hero. But, you know, I grew up in Memphis, and, and, and Lawler was from Treadwell High School, went to Memphis State University. And just, uh, yeah, without a doubt, he influenced my, my deadpan delivery and, and, and cracking the way I would crack jokes. Eric Embry was doing a promo, and he goes, Lawler, I have not never liked you. And I just looked at Lawler, and I went, huh, well, that's a major heat there using a double negative. <laughs> and, and it, you know, it wasn't the funniest thing in the world, but Lawler just, you know, it kind of cracked him up. And he asked Kevin, he goes, hey, who was that? It was a skinny punk hanging around in the back. And he's like, oh, it's friendly. He goes, well, uh, Jerry Calhoun just had to had to quit, uh, you know, asking me if he wants to referee. And uh, I think Lawler has since rude that day. <laughs> <laughs> because, I don't know, the King and I have had our ups and downs, but we mostly get along. But I think I drive him crazy sometimes because I'll write something or I'll talk about something on the podcast, and he'll be like, oh, no, don't, don't, don't tell everybody that I hated my matches with Rick, with Ric Flair. <laughs> <laughs> That's just awesome. So, again, go to K. We have this conversation. Go to now. Go to the website, kfrpod.com. Again, it's Kentucky Fried Wrestling. You'll really enjoy this podcast. If you love wrestling, you'll love this podcast. Download it wherever you find your podcast. Uh, so as a referee in Memphis, you really establish yourself on the mic um, and maybe not like in a Nick Patrick way or Dick Kroll way. You kind of put yourself over a little bit. The first time you got on the mic as a referee, what was that experience like? Well, yeah, we did a deal where Eddie, Gil- Eddie Gilbert turned me heel. Uh, and, you know, he made Lawler. I-, I went up to Eddie and I said, and Eddie had sort of, yeah, sort of had his eye on me. You know, we, we, I would talk to him about finishes. Uh, the first time I suggested a finish to him, he about threw me out of the dressing room. Uh, but I, you know, I'd been such a student of the game, and and, and I just my even before I knew what a booker was, I was doing uh, notebooks, you know, and I and I would like make up cards of my own. And come to find out, that's what Eddie was doing. Eddie would take his notebook and show it to Jerry Jarrett and say, "What do you think of this?" And Jerry Jarrett immediately knew that one day he was going to be a booker. And, uh, and then, you know, I did the same thing. And so Eddie, you know, came up with this deal because some of my friends were in attendance. And it was supposed to be a deal where I, I turned heel, kicked my 
you know, childhood hero Lawler in the back of the head, put Eddie Gilbert on top like I was taking a payoff, and counted three really quick. And the plan was that they were going to switch me back babyface because I was going to be an inexperienced manager, screw something up, and then they were going to, you know, beat me to death. And then when I recovered, I'd come back as a babyface for us. Well, I, I was brokenhearted because I thought that I was going to be a heel manager from here on out. <laughs> and so it was live TV, and they told me that I was going to go out there and, like, try to apologize. And uh, and then, you know, they were going to suspend me. And then Eddie Gilbert was, like, going to, you know, take me under his wing for a week or two, and then, you know, that would be it. But instead of going out there and apologizing, I just said, Lance goes, he goes, what do you have to say for yourself, young man? And I said, well, Lawler's pushed me around, just like he used to do with Jerry Calhoun, his old softball buddy who was a referee, but I wasn't going to stand for it, so I stomped him like the cockroach that he is. Because <laughs> <laughs> I figured, hey, you know, it's live TV, what are they going to do? And I kind of had a feeling if it was, if it was, if it was, if it was a good promo, they wouldn't care. And uh, Kevin Lawler was in the back. And he just said, he goes, man, my dad, his eyes got as big as saucers. <laughs> it was like, what the hell is he doing? Uh, but I, I got to the back, and my heart was just racing. But I knew it had gone well. And Lawler waves me over, and he's like, all right, Scott. That was pretty good. But next time, do what I tell you to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's oh, awesome. Oh, man. But so at least it, he gave it, me the it was light. fun, man. Yeah. Uh, so – Growing up here in Vern's territory, here in Chicago, I, of course, you had no other choice but to know who Jerry Lawler was because of the whole feud with Andy Kaufman being on the Letterman show and then through the magazines, you'd see all these color pictures of, of Jerry Lawler. Said, man, I, and I'm thinking as a kid, think, man, I wish I could see this you know, in person. But, of course, it was in the Memphis territory. But actually, Jerry did win that AWA title and that held-up title with Kerry Von Erich at Super Clash at the UIC Pavilion here in Chicago in 88 did did that feud resonate with you at all? Because that looked like a mess from the beginning to the end. That matchup. Well, it wasn't. It, it wasn't initially, um, and you could argue that maybe the, uh, the the world title win came a little too late. You know, I, I wish that they had. Uh, Lawler seemingly won the belt in, in December of '82, and they did this great screw job finish where Andy Kaufman. Uh, came back under a, a mask and everyone thought it was Jimmy Hart who had been burned by a, a few Lawler fireballs a, a week earlier, which I, I don't think you saw, saw so many fireballs in AWA territory. No, <laughs> no. But they were, especially about baby faces. You know, I think Lawler was like the dirtiest baby face in, in history. Um, and so everyone thought it was Jimmy Hart at ringside, but it, and then Nick Hart comes around and distracts Lawler with no bandages, and it come to find out that it was Andy Kaufman who you know was the second uh, you know uh, guy dressed. He was covered in bandages head to toe, like uh, like the Invisible Man. Um, so it, it was just a great way to, to screw Lawler out of out of his dream. Uh, but uh, it was only recognized in Memphis and. And uh, in, in, in not an official title change, uh, but when he got it in '88, it was cool to see because it was either now, you know, it was now or never. And even though the AWA was struggling a little bit, on, you know, on its on its on its last legs, Kurt Hennig uh, was clearly one of the top ten wrestlers in the country at that point. And WWE was was you know hot and heavy. They were after him. Uh, they had already tried to sign him once. So. While I wish that Lawler had won it over Bockwinkle, which would have given him more maybe credibility, uh, you know, in the Chicago area with longtime AWA fans, it was it was it was pretty cool that he got to beat Hennig, who 
then went on to, you know, his greatest fame as Mr. Perfect. So, um, and I was there that night, and and it, and it was, you know, even though crowds had been in like the three three thousand range and four thousand range, about nine thousand people, you know, were there for the, uh, at the Coliseum. They didn't sell it out, uh, but it 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 felt like the magical Monday nights that that I grew up with. Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday after SmackDown Live, our guest Scott Bowden from KFRPod.com. Wherever you find your podcast, look for the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast. He joins me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. So sheltered as an AWA guy because <laughs> because here's the thing, like that whole Bachwinkle uh, Lawler thing, that wasn't on Burns TV. They didn't show that on yeah. Burns TV. That, that that sucked. Like I had to learn that through the magazines. They, because of course you can't get away from the Greg Gagne versus Jake the Milkman Millman matches to show great Bachwinkle Lawler matches. Well, uh, Lawler did wrestle Bachwinkle, and, and, and he had one World Heavyweight Title match with Bachwinkle uh, in Chicago in, in uh, '82 or '83. Um, but other than that, Lawler was mostly brought in as a special attraction. I know he worked the. Super Sunday show uh, that was main evented by Hogan and Bachwinkle, and they had the the kind of screw job finish with uh, I think Lord James Blears was was the referee, mm-hmm. and he got knocked out or something. And Hogan threw Bachwinkle over the top rope, and they you know did the whole uh, dusty finish, if you will, uh, if you will, in public. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the AWA would only do an angle like a hot angle, like maybe two or three times a year. Memphis oh. would have like one every show. Um, <laughs> Uh, but they also knew Memphis also knew how to change directions. And when they got serious about Lawler's quest for the title, you know that was like the overarching storyline for the promotion for so many years. And people think Memphis was just one note, and that all they could do was you know promote these wild gimmick matches that nobody had ever heard of. And they did, you know, they did the scaffold matches and the snake box matches and all this kind of stuff. Um, but Lawler occasionally would come out and go, you know, I've gotten distracted. And, you know, I got in this business to win the World Heavyweight Championship, and I'm going to start knocking off all these contenders. And in that respect, I think promoter Jerry Jarrett was really smart because he would only book the champion, have one or two dates on him. He didn't bring him in, bring the champion in a lot, but he got mileage out of that, promo, out of, out of that appearance because for two months, there, you know, Lawler would be, you know, trying to knock off these contenders or – it would be, you know, a personal issue that was strong enough for Austin Idol and Tommy Rich to turn on him, uh, which led to the, head, you know, the big head shaving match. That all started over a shot at Nick Bockwinkle for the AWA World Title. Uh, when Lawler turned uh, heel on Dundee in '79, it was because Dundee got uh, the first crack at Bockwinkle, and then the AWA ordered a rematch between the two. And Lawler was like, "Hey, what about my shot?" Mm-hmm. And the world championship was viewed as something that was so important. Uh, so when the champion did come to town, it was it had like the atmosphere of, of, of a Super Bowl or, or a, a Game Seven of a playoff game. Well, Lawler was your guy. Bachwinkle was my guy living here in Chicago. So, <laughs> I, I, so as you mentioned, as you're not necessarily the biggest Ric Flair fan, actually Bachwinkle outdid Flair as far as oh. in ring and just. That type of um, that personality, Scott. That's I mean, if Bachwinkle had a blonde next to him, he really would be the full Ric Flair. But he actually didn't need him. He had Bobby Heenan or Ray Stevens next to him. He still was cool. <laughs> well, he, well, yeah, Bachwinkle. I, I I admire him more now. As a kid, I, it was frustrating for me. One thing about this is the thing you have to tip your hat to Jerry Jarrett. They promoted Bachwinkle and they protected him. 
they had it where Lawler, you know, would come close to beating him, but they didn't make him. They didn't book book him like uh, Flair was wasted uh, in world class. Like I mean, where Flair can even hang with Mike Von Erich, who had been wrestling two months. <laughs> right. Um, you know, Bockwinkle got a lot of pinfalls on Lawler. Uh, you know, and now he would do a lot of little subtle cheating moves, uh, and it would always frustrate you because you almost had to have a dictionary when Bockwinkle was delivering a promo. But because Bockwinkle only came in a few times a year, and I was, at, at, as, a, as a kid, you know, that was my, I viewed that as a Super Bowl ring. So I saw more Bockwinkle matches with Lawler. He was my favorite opponent for Lawler, without a doubt. Uh, the first time I saw them wrestle was in 1979. Um, and they went an hour. And you might think that a kid who was eight years old might be bored with that. But I was on. I remember that's probably the best match I've, I've ever seen live. Even though I was only eight, I, I, I still remember it. And uh, it, was just, it was fantastic. Scott, last thing I have for you, and I appreciate your time, I'm going to ask you a question that you and Brian Lass have not brought up on the show. I'm just wondering, you're just very curious your thoughts on this. So when it comes to the Memphis Territory, if Memphis was syndicated, whether it's just regional in the South or somewhere in the Midwest in the South, would it have the same appeal? Because it was, it was specific for Memphis and that territory. Would it be have the same shine if it was a syndicated program like World Class, like the WWF, NWA back in those days? I think so. And the reason is uh, I've, I've talked to so many fans who were really into tape trading. And I got into that culture when I was about 15. This guy had placed an ad in the newspaper wanting people to tape the local shows, and he ended up sending me tapes from Florida, Japan. It was almost like, you know, that the, the primitive version of YouTube, you know, where now everything is so widely available. And those who got the Memphis tapes and, and were able to see it absolutely loved it. I, I've talked to so many fans who grew up in other territories and they they remind me of stuff, and and I you know I and I, I'm very detailed whenever I go on my podcast. I think I have all my facts straight, and I, I have a, a very vivid. I would take notes of every live show I attended, but they know they know they're right there with me. There's a guy named Chris Zellner who's a wrestling podcast, and he's amazing. He blows my mind sometimes. I do want to say really quickly though. Lawler brought Bockwinkle in to team with him once at a tag team tournament. You know, Lawler gave one of those promos where he's like, you know, when you go into a situation like this, you want to get the, the guy who's given you the toughest matches. And as everybody knows, Nick Bockwinkle has been the most frustrating opponent I've ever had, so I'm bringing him in for this tag title tournament, and we're going after it. And I got his autograph. I, the only time that I've, you know, I ever approached him for an autograph, and he looked at me, and he's like, very well. <laughs> Very well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Bockwinkle. Yeah, I was like, you know, clean down. He's like, yeah, okay, you'll do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, but without a doubt, man. You know, and I think you hit the. You were close to saying this, but Flair looked like a guy who was trying to portray the role of the millionaire high-rolling world champion. Bockwinkle came off like he was the real deal, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, it's like he just stepped right out of high society. And I love, like, the, the red jumpsuit that just said California. Right. right. <laughs> it's so for its time. It's just a, it's, you know, it's velvet, and it's just got, like, little diamonds on it. It's just California. Uh, he was so versatile, you know? And every match was different. He and Lawler 
Sometimes it would just be an all out brawl. Brock would go occasionally, would go, I said you can't go this match, the entire match without throwing a punch. And yeah. they did. They went an entire Lawler, it was maybe a first, an entire Lawler match. He doesn't throw a punch, and Bockwinkle's in a jam, and then he sucker punches Lawler and gets the pin. <laughs> so they did They did so many different things, whereas Flair, you know, he was good at what he did, but it was typically the same thing. Yeah. Well, again, go to kfrpod.com. That's where you can find uh, Scott Bowden and a terrific podcast. The latest one is an interview with uh, superstar Bill Dundee. It's episode 26. Make sure you check that out. And also terrific merch as well, merchandise from kfrpod.com. Check that out and get yourself a nice mug. That's what I've got uh, in store, a nice little Hanna-Barbera-like mug with some of the great stars of Memphis. So, Scott, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Let's please do it again when you get a chance. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and hey, be sure to check out the new Nick Bockwinkle t-shirt over at <laughs> MemphisWrestlingTees.com. Uh, there's kind of this running joke on the 605 uh, Super Podcast where everybody refers to Nick Bockwinkle as uh, the guy was just pure class. Yes, pure class, right? <laughs> yeah, we've got, yeah, we, yeah, we've got a pure class Nick Bockwinkle shirt that is perfect for any social occasion this summer. There you go. I'm definitely getting that thing because I was a Bach, I was a Bachwinkle Mark, so this is perfect for me. Uh, there you Scott, go, man. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'd love to do it again. Scott Bowden from KFRPod.com with us here on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Glad that you're with us as you are listening to ESPN 1000. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yo, Jay, look. You know nobody covers the sports like you do, man. Let's go.